Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. There's a verse in the 12th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians that is to me one of the more intriguing verses in the New Testament. Paul is speaking, it is a passage that many of us look at with great interest because in the end of the chapter he deals with the question of gifts. But before he ever approaches the questions of gifts, he deals with another subject, and that is the subject of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Somehow all those who ever met our Lord and responded to him positively, found that the most natural way of of speaking to him and addressing him was to use the title Lord. In Greek, it was the term kurios. But that had special significance for a Jew. Because, you see, in the Old Testament, that was the word which was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the personal name of God. So that there was that ambiguity in its use. Some people used it and simply used it as a title indicating great respect. But there were other people that used it and used it in the sense of complete worship. And for them to call him Lord said that he was to have the place in their lives of God. When the church began its career and its history, one of the first questions it had to deal with was who was Jesus and how we would relate to him. And when the church finally spelled out its theology of the person of Christ, it took that title. And it is to this day the most common word in prayer when we come to him. You will remember that Thomas said it for us. When on that second Sunday night after the resurrection, when the first Sunday night he had not been present, but his friends had told him about the resurrection, you will remember Thomas said, I will not believe until I see him, until I place my fingers into the scars in his hands. Until I have identified him, I will not believe that he is alive. And it was the next Sunday night that Jesus appeared, resurrected Lord to Thomas. He didn't wait to touch his hands, but he fell at his feet and said, My Lord and my God. Now, if the church says that's the proper way to speak about Jesus, it's interesting that Paul said it isn't easy. In fact, the verse that I want to call your attention to, verse 3 says, Strangely enough, that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, let me use the King James, except by the Holy Spirit. The idea being that there is no way that a human being can acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord in his own strength. Now, the way it is expressed in 1 Corinthians is 
no man can say. Now, certainly there's no problem in uttering those three words, Jesus is Lord. No Roman had any problem saying, Caesar is Lord. And all it takes is about a second to a second and a half, even for a southerner to say it. Jesus is Lord. But Paul speaks and says, no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Paul addressing? I suspect that text has fascinated me because the greatest problem in my life has been at that point. And the greatest problem in any person's life is letting Jesus be who he really is in that person's life. Let him be Lord. You will remember that Paul had some problems in the beginning, and I question whether they were all over with after his Damascus Road experience. If they were, he was radically different from most of us. Because it is one thing to hear the voice of Christ calling us to follow him, and then it is another thing, day after day, and week after week, and year after year, letting him be whom, who he is supposed to be, Lord, within our lives. I had a medical student tell me who was doing his residency, He said, you know, I came to know Christ before I went away to university. But when I got into university, he said, I found my heart straying. And he said, I let other things come to the center. He said, I fought my way through that and got into medical school and finished medical school and then got into internship and residency. He said, I was working those 36-hour shifts where you were on for 36 hours without a break. And he said, I found that I could do that. But he said, I found something else. I found that I was so busy that I forgot about him. And he said, you know, the amazing thing I learned, when I don't talk to him, he doesn't talk to me. And he said, I found him on the margin again. But he said, you know, when he went to the margin of my life, or when I pushed him there, he said it didn't leave a vacuum. Because he said, where he had been, other things moved in. He said, you see, I was living through a period of great self-pity. Because I was working at slave labor wages, from my point of view and doing the work that the doctors got paid for. And he said they'd take off on the weekend for their boats and for their summer, for their beach houses and for their weekends in Las Vegas and for all the rest. And he said slowly a mountain of resentment arose within me. And I began to say, poor me. He said, I thought I'm getting the dirty end of the stick. But you just let me get through and get out there in suburbia and I'll begin to make some money like they make and I'll have my pleasures too. He said, you know, I don't know anything more deadly than self-pity. 
Because self-pity means that God isn't being fair to you. So he said, I found I began to resent God. And then one day I realized where I was. And I knew that unless I changed, my whole life was already pre-programmed. Then he said the question was, how could I change what was in here? He said, do you know the shock of my life? I came out of a Christian home. I was a college graduate, a university graduate in medicine. had finished my internship and was in my third year of residency. And he said, the shocker was that I found I had not one power in my being capable of pulling a single one of those appetites and lusts out of me. He said, that was a shocker. I always thought I was free to choose. And so I could choose to obey the lust, or I could choose to deny. But he said, I found I had no power to change the appetites now of my sinful heart. And he said, the shock slowly came home to me that my life was out of control. And those appetites controlled me, not I, them. So he said, I decided I had to do something. Barring a miracle, my life was already preset. So he said, I had a day off after some of those 36-hour stints. And he said, I spent it in fasting and in praying and saying, God, can you do for me what I can't do for myself? Now, you see, he had come to know what Paul had come to know. No person is capable in himself or in herself, to let Christ be whom he really is, by nature, position, role, right. One has to say, God, if I am to be yours, you are going to have to do something within me to set me free to where inside I want what in my head there is a voice that tells me I should. My young medical friend said, you know, the miracle occurred. And he said, the great liberation of my life was when I found in here the desire for and the freedom to do what here there was a voice said, that's the way you should go. Now, that's what Paul was talking about when he said, nobody can let Christ be Lord in his life without the power of the Holy Spirit. You heard the song that was sung. And the songwriter knew the same truth. And so he cried out, you create in me a clean heart, O God, and you renew a right spirit within me. Now, why is it that we are so... Uh, difficult to bring, to surrender 
to God and to his Christ. One is the lust of our own hearts, and another is the deep fear of what he'll do with us. You see, if I turn my life over to him and let him make the decisions, I don't know what decisions he's going to make. And so I keep a tight hold on my life because I know what I want. At least I think I do. I think I know what will satisfy me and I want to be satisfied. And there is a deep question in my heart as to whether he would give me what would satisfy me and what I really want. And so right at the heart of our rebellion and our resistance, is a big question mark about his character and his will toward us. You see, his demand is rather absolute, isn't it? And that absoluteness and that finality is terrifying to most of us. C.S. Lewis was much closer to where all of us are than many of us want to admit When he said, when I came into the kingdom, I came kicking and screaming. God had to drag me in. You see, he recognized the resistance within his own heart. Now, that absolute demand is there. Those who have heard me speak a good many times know that one of my favorite stories from the early churches is the story of the girl who was put on trial, and the question was, would she acknowledge Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord? And they said, if you will simply say Caesar is Lord, you will be free. And she said, but I can't, because he isn't. A Roman senator came to her and said, daughter, it isn't necessary for you to die. All you've got to do is speak three words and live like you please after that. And if you want to be a Christian, you can But for the moment, do what they want you to do. And she said, but it won't, but it isn't true. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he said, honey, your life is at stake. Can't you take a second and a half to say three words away so that you can live? There is an absoluteness about that, isn't there? But you know, the interesting thing is, I have never met anybody who came to the place where he let God bring him through that eye of the needle, hard as it is, to where Christ was in control that ever lamented it. If we had time, I'd love to do a Bible study. The favorite testimony of mine in all of Christian literature, interestingly enough, comes from before Christ. I like that. The reason I like it is because of the fact I'm convinced it's testimony to the fact that God has never changed. And what he wanted a thousand years before Christ is what he wanted when Christ was here and what he wanted a thousand years after and what he wants now and what he will want the day that I stand before him in a final appearance. He doesn't change. You see, he's God. And he wanted to be God back then, and he wants to be God now, and he will want to be God then, and he will be God then. We may not let him rule over us, but he will rule 
We may not let him rule in the desires of our heart, but he will rule because he is God. Now, the passage to which I refer, the testimony was one of the, from the psalm. Let me very quickly, because our time is almost gone, give you just a comment or two out of that psalm that fascinate me. If you will look at the first two verses, you will notice that it is a prayer. It's beautiful to me the way many of the psalms begin with the conclusion. The psalmist has lived through the experience, and now he's writing about it. And so the opening lines are his conclusion. You know what his conclusion is? Keep me, O God, for in you do I take refuge. Now, that's one translation. It's interesting that the Septuagint says, Keep me, O God, for in you do I hope. And I wondered if that, take refuge and hope, to us they may not be identical. But do you know something? If you don't believe that it will be good to let him keep your heart, you won't let him. And it is hope that you can trust him that brings you to the place where you say, Lord, you be Lord. Down in the psalm, there is a half a line, a half a verse. It's one line. He said, I said to him, so Yahweh, you are my Lord. Then he said, you maintain my lot. Now, let me drop this with you right before we close. Fascinating line, because the word lot is a gambler's term. You see, it's from drawing straws, or from casting lots, or from rolling the dice. It intrigues me when a person will say, Lord, my life's at stake. You roll the dice. And whatever comes up when you roll it, that's what I will choose. Because I trust you when the dice roll better than I trust me. Do you know the next line? The psalmist said, The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. In him I have found the secret of life, and in his hand, For me, there is a satiety, a satiation of pleasures forevermore. I don't know whether you're fighting the battle today, but you will. Because to be human is to be a creature, a a child of God, and somewhere you will have to fight it. When that battle comes, And you're afraid to let him have the yes. I hope you will remember that you've heard somebody say that nobody who ever let him have the yes ever lamented it.